Oh, goodness. Well, good morning. It's so good to be with all of you, as always. Um, I know that Jesus is with us and among us in a very special way when we gather together. And I just know that he longs to speak to each one of us personally and to all of us collectively today. So please make that happen, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, um, Andy and I and our daughter, Bonnie, were driving back from Fort Worth. Uh, We were celebrating um, our son-in-law's birthday, but we didn't realize that a storm was brewing. You might remember it. And so we got in the car about nine o'clock at night and it was really dark and the storm hadn't hit yet, but the wind was howling all around us. There was lightning everywhere and it was just um, a very tense ride home. (laughs) Um, Bonnie was worried about her car getting hail damaged because that was in the forecast. We were both worried about getting the dogs out to do their business before the storm actually hit, (laughs) but we did, thankfully, we made it home safely and ahead of the storm. We managed to get Bonnie's car moved to a covered area, and we also managed to take the dogs out with the lightning all around, which probably wasn't a very smart thing for us to do, Bonnie. (laughs) But anyway, we didn't go very far from home, Um, and as we were headed back, though, we were about 50 yards from the house. And all of a sudden, we felt the wind whip up behind us, and it was strong, and it was loud, and we started to feel raindrops, and both of us just took off running for home, and we felt like the storm was literally chasing us home, and it pushed us through the door, and we just felt this huge relief when we leaned against that front door and and realized that we had made it, and the tornado had not hit, and we just could relax. I have a friend who says that relief is her favorite emotion, and it's mine too, right? (laughs) We have all felt it. Um, You know, when that last exam is turned in, when that project is finally finished and off the table, um, when the ibuprofen finally kicks in, (laughs) when the kids are finally asleep in bed, when that biopsy comes back negative, We all know the feeling of when a burden that we have been carrying has been lifted. And you know, forgiveness feels like that. It feels like relief. When the burden of guilt and shame has been lifted from your shoulders, you literally feel it physically. And when a relationship has been restored, or at least a first step has been taken toward healing and forgiveness, there's this deep sense of relief. Our lesson today, as you know, is about sin, confession, and forgiveness. And so this message is going to revolve around those three concepts. We're going to talk about sin and its damaging effects on our relationships. But then we'll talk about the gift of confession and finally the restorative power of forgiveness. And it's going to be practical, y'all. Sin is really easy for us, but forgiveness, not so much. So let's, by, let's start by putting this part of the Lord's Prayer in its context by way of review. Jesus has taught us to pray as children to our loving Heavenly Father, um, that God's name would be hallowed among us, that we would set aside our own agendas and pray that God's kingdom agenda would be um, realized on the earth, that his will would be accomplished on the earth as it is in heaven. And then he taught us to daily trust and depend on God for even our most basic needs like bread and for everything else that we might need in this life to fill and satisfy us in the deepest ways. 
And now this week's lessons, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. The Lord's prayer from beginning to end is a communal prayer because Jesus' kingdom vision was never just for God's personal rule in in individual hearts, but it was for the creation of a whole new kind of human family, one that's not determined by biology or geography or vocation or any form of social status or pedigree, but one that is determined entirely by faith in the one true king and characterized by love and a rugged commitment to unity. That's how Jesus said that the world would recognize his kingdom people and would want to join us in what I like to call the fellowship of the forgiven and the forgiving. This new kind of family is called the church. We're in this together, and it's the only way that we can participate in Jesus' kingdom mission. And that's why I wore my T-shirt today <laughs> as a visual aid and reminder that, that this is, we are in a community. We are the community of the forgiven and the forgiving. But now Jesus was a, real, was a realist. Until he comes again to set everything right, as Tiffany so beautifully described for us last week, we live in the era of the not yet kingdom of God. And there will be sin and conflict, even in the church, because we too are not yet. (laughs) We are still sinners, even though we have been saved by God's radical grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So we need to talk about sin, the storm that threatens all of our relationships. I know that sin is an outmoded term in this postmodern generation, isn't it? Many people feel that it's just an old-fashioned concept. The thinking goes like this, as long as no one gets hurt, it's okay. As long as consenting adults are involved, nothing wrong here. If it feels right and your social circle says it's okay, then it is okay. But the truth is sin is real and it does wound both the sinner and those that are affected by the sin. So what is it? Well, in the book of Romans, Paul teaches us that sin is a power that is at work in all of us, and it goes all the way back to Adam. Sin is essentially an inward twisting of our hearts away from God and away from others and focused on ourselves so that all that we do is calculated for our best outcome, even if we don't realize it, even if we're not aware of it. In kingdom language, our natural bent is to dethrone God and replace him with ourselves so that even the good things that we do are self-gratifying. We can't help ourselves, Paul says, because sin is a slave master and sin's task is to distance us from God and one another. Sin distances us from God and one another and that's why sin is such a big deal to God. Our interpersonal relationships, how we view and value and treat God and one another, even our enemies, means everything to God. He designed us to be in deep, intimate relationships. So much so that Jesus said, and this is my paraphrase of Matthew 5, he says, if you come to church one fine Sunday morning, Bible in hand, ready to take notes, ready to stand and sing and praise and give an offering, But there you remember that your brother or sister in Christ has something against you. He says, leave leave it there. Stop doing what you're doing and go be reconciled to that person. Then come back and worship me. That happened to me just a few weeks ago. 
It was a Sunday morning, and I had gotten annoyed with Andy about something I don't remember. And I said something a little snarky in the car on the way to church, and Andy didn't appreciate it. Still, we smiled and nodded on our way in, you know. (laughs) And we took our seats, and then we stood, and we started to sing, except I couldn't choke out one single word. (laughs) I literally could not praise God. Well, I had unconfessed sin towards my husband. And so as hard as it was, I turned and asked his forgiveness, which he immediately gave. And then I could worship. Sin distances us from God and from each other, and usually at the same time. Because when we have sinned against another, we've also sinned against God. And unconfessed, it hinders our prayers, it hinders our worship. And that's because sin essentially, is a violation of the kingdom law of love. It's actually an exercise in missing the point of life. When asked by an expert in the law of Moses what the greatest commandment was, Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. In combining these two commandments into one commandment that transcends all the others, of which there were over 600 in the Old Testament, Jesus was cutting to the chase. He was driving to the ethical core behind all of his laws and in the standard by which he wanted his people to live. And that standard is love. Not the touchy-feely, sentimental kind of self-focused love but the kind of love described by God when he introduced himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. The Lord passed by Moses, and as he did so, he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But he by no means leaves the guilty unpunished. Now, here's the connection. God created us in his image to bear his likeness in terms of his character, to have hearts of compassion and grace towards others, dispositions that aren't easily offended, but fully committed to doing good for others in relationships of love and faithfulness, always willing and able to forgive. Sin is the opposite of that. It's hard-hearted. It's self-centered, it's easily angered, it's disloyal, and it's vengeful. Sin at its most basic level is a failure to love as God loves. God is love, the Bible says, but love is a two-sided coin. It is both just and merciful. Mark 3 records an incident that happened in a synagogue one Sabbath day. Jesus was there and he noticed a man with a paralyzed hand. And the Pharisees were also there, and they were watching Jesus to see if he would heal the man so they could accuse him of violating a Sabbath law. And there's a backstory to that. The Pharisees were not terrible people. (laughs) They were devout Jews who, by and large, really wanted to obey God um, and do what was right. Um, They lived under the old covenant that was governed by all the laws that Moses wrote down in the first five books of the Bible. And just as we do today, they read God's law 
They interpreted God's word and they tried to figure out how to apply it to their lives. And that's all good. So, for example, God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Don't do any work. Not you, not your animals, nobody. So great. Well, what exactly constitutes work? The rabbis wondered. We need to figure that out so that we can obey God because we love God. We want to obey him. Now, as a recovering Pharisee myself, I've told you this before, I would love to have been on the rules committee (laughs) back in the day because I love rules. Um, It's probably why I always like math and science (laughs) because there are rules for things, right? And there are formulas and there are solid answers, except when it comes to COVID, but won't go there. Um, but you know where you are. You know where you stand when you're solving a math problem. You're either right or you're wrong. There's no messy little gray areas anywhere. (laughs) Well, the Pharisees didn't like gray areas either. So they came up with no less than 39 major categories with uh, hundreds of subcategories of labor that was forbidden on the Sabbath day. They even had a category for healing. So, for example, only if life was endangered should one attempt to heal on the Sabbath. A person was not even permitted to set a child's broken bone or to pour cold water on a swollen hand or foot on the Sabbath. So here's Jesus in a synagogue on the Sabbath, and he sees a man in need of healing. And at the same time, he's being scrutinized by people who think they're more righteous than Jesus, just waiting to trap him in a rule violation. They have completely missed the point of God's law. So Jesus asked them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or evil, to save life or destroy it? But they were silent. And I just wonder how long Jesus let that silence go on. After looking around at them in anger, grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. So the Pharisees went out immediately and began plotting with the Herodians how they could assassinate him. Seriously? Sadly, that reminds me of that commercial a while back where a group of older ladies about my age who were, like me, totally clueless about technology and how to post a picture on a Facebook or an Instagram wall. Y'all remember this? And they're literally gathered around in someone's living room and they are posting, that is, they are taping their vacation pictures on the wall of the living room and they're pointing and admiring and chatting about them, all except for this one lady who gets it and she stands up and she looks at them like they're all crazy and she says, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. (laughs) Jesus felt that way. That was the kind of frustration he felt with the Pharisees over and over again. That's not how this works. He didn't find fault with their desire to obey God and keep his laws. They were supposed to do that. And they did a lot of good things. They prayed three times a day. They tied 10% of their income. They gave alms to the poor. They worshiped regularly in their synagogues. They made pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the festivals. What he found fault with was that they completely missed the point of all of those religious activities, which was to love God deeply from the heart and to show compassion to others. Instead, they were bound up, enslaved, as it were, to duty and religious achievements in a futile attempt to stay in good standing with God and to look good in front of others. 
unless we judge the Pharisees, we need to acknowledge that we often do the same things, don't we? We make up rules of our own, often well-intentioned, but that miss the point. And we wind up stumbling over our own rules and falling into sin and judging others instead of genuinely loving them. But Jesus came along and he said, you like rules? Let's start with just one, love. If you can get that one right, then all the other rules are going to fall into place. See, Jesus was after inward transformation of the heart over but not against truly righteous behavior, outwardly righteous things. Yes, there are good things he wants us to do. And yes, there are sins he wants us to avoid because he loves us and sin damages our relationship and distances us from him and from others. But when our hearts are right, our actions are right. And then we are living, flourishing in the life that God designed for us to live in his kingdom. But we fall short of that all the time, don't we? We can't make our hearts right. No law, spiritual or secular, can transform our hearts. For that, we need Jesus. And for that, he came. Not only to forgive our sins by absorbing them in his own body on the cross and setting us free from the power of sin to control us, but in the words of the prophet Ezekiel, he came to replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. And to put his spirit in us so that religious duty and self-centered living could be replaced with genuine love. But heart transformation in the power of the Holy Spirit is a lifelong process, isn't it? We still violate the law of love every day in thought, word, and deed. You probably remember the lady who called into the Ellen show a while back and said, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. (laughs) And we laugh because we get it. We can relate. We know that none of us is perfect, and yet Jesus still calls us to the highest standard of love. But when we fall short, we can come to Jesus again and again through the gift of confessional prayer. Confessional prayer is a gift, first of all, because the honesty of it brings great relief to our souls. But more importantly, it comes with a promise of forgiveness. King David wrote in Psalm 32, he said, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. You can just hear and feel the relief in his voice as he confesses his sins to God and realizes that God has forgiven him. And he has received that forgiveness as a gift of pure grace. Is there anything you've been hiding from God or someone else? Isn't it time to experience the relief from that guilt and that shame? Forgiveness is promised to all those who come honestly to God with humble hearts. Acknowledging the truth that we've fallen short and then accepting by faith that God has removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. Some of the most beautiful words in all of scripture are the words of the apostle John in his first epistle. 
1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we claim to be without sin, the truth, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, as important as it is to confess our sins to God and to seek his forgiveness and receive it, it's equally important to do the same with others whom we've sinned against. But that always feels harder, doesn't it? It's hard to admit that we're wrong, that we've messed up and created a storm that has caused pain to another. It's humbling. And yet, just as true humility gets you everywhere with God, I've noticed that genuine humility can open wide a door to people's hearts as well. So I feel like we need to get really practical here and talk about how to confess our sins to God and to one another in a way that's truly restorative. A few years ago, a a counselor came and spoke to our chapel at Dallas Seminary, and his whole topic was about how to make a good apology. But I'm going to use the word confession because that's a biblical word. (laughs) And here they are. There's four components to making a good confession. And the first one is just to lay it out there. I'm so sorry that I, and then name the sin without any excuse. Don't say, I'm sorry if I offended you. Don't say, I'm sorry if you felt that way. There is no if or you in a good confession. I'm sorry that I, whatever. And there's also no but. I'm sorry I did this, but you did that. You know, don't blame other people for your sin. Sure, they may have had a part in it, but that's between them and God. You own your part and let God deal with theirs. Then secondly, say something like, what I did must have made you feel blank. That means you have taken the time to think about how your words or actions affected the other person. And when you do that with genuine sorrow, that person is going to feel at least understood and heard and hopefully loved. And that's the goal. It's the beginning of reconciliation and restoring that relationship. But then, number three, say something like, I will try to never do that again. Repentance is important, both to God and to others. It's what makes the confession genuine and puts you on a path of transformation, making those daily choices to change old patterns of relating and learning to love as you have been loved by Jesus. Now, you might do that thing again, right? But it would never be your intention because repentance is making a commitment to change. And change is a process that takes time and persistence and the help of the Holy Spirit and sometimes the help of a good counselor. If that sin habit has been ingrained um, or there's a, a habit that you just can't get rid of on your own. And then finally, the fourth thing, will you forgive me? It's so important to ask the question because that puts the ball in their court. Though they may not forgive you right away, it's up to them. But you have done what you can do in the sincerity of your heart to restore that relationship. So is there someone that you're aware of that you have offended and need to make things right with? I urge you, to make reconciliation and restoration your priority this week. Do what you can on your part. But now we have to put the shoe on the other foot, don't we? I imagine a number of us have come in here with deep wounds in our hearts because of the words or actions of another person. 
And I want to ask, if that person was truly repentant and ask your forgiveness today, would you forgive them? What, what if they never do? What if they never repent and ask, would you forgive them? Maybe we should talk about what forgiveness is and what it isn't. The word itself basically means to release. In a legal sense, it can mean to pardon an offender. It can mean to cancel a debt, thereby releasing them from their obligation to pay it back. In the words of Tony Jones, he says, forgiveness doesn't mean the wrong wasn't wrong. It means you give up your right to revenge. You release that right. Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And Jesus went on to explain this part of the prayer. He said, for if you forgive um, those who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. Now, that sounds contradictory and harsh to us, doesn't it? But those words would have sounded perfectly reasonable to the Jews of Jesus' day. Because theirs was an honor, shame, culture, and reciprocity was a way of life. You give someone a gift, they give you a gift. You invite someone to dinner, they return the invitation. It was the just and right thing to do. It would have been unthinkable not to do good for good. And that's what the parable in our lesson this week was all about. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Jesus said, and now whenever Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like something, we need to perk up and take notice because Jesus is saying, this is how I want you to live in my kingdom as, as you relate to me and to other people. I don't have time to read through the parable. I'm just going to paraphrase it as I go along and draw out three basic principles of forgiveness. Okay, and the first one is this, forgiveness is costly. The servant in the parable owed the king an astronomical amount of money, and he was in an utterly helpless and hopeless situation, could never pay it back. And so the king ordered that this man and his whole family be sold into slavery and his property liquidated in order to at least pay part of that debt. Remarkably, though, when the man begged for forgiveness, the king had a change of heart. Jesus said he felt compassion. And that word compassion is the same emotion or the same motivating force behind everything that Jesus did in the gospels. If you go back and read through them, it cost the king in the parable an enormous amount of money to pardon that debtor. And of course, the king in the story is a reference to God himself who will also settle accounts one day. Our sins were piled up high like a huge mountain of debt that we could never hope to repay. So out of deep compassion, God sent Jesus to pay our debt so that we could be set free. And because God forgave our astronomical debt, he requires us to forgive others who have offended us in comparatively smaller ways. It's the only just and merciful thing to do. But let's keep it real. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is hard. But unforgiveness is worse. Tim Keller illustrates it this way. He says, let's say a friend accidentally, you know, smashes a lamp in your apartment. And um, you can either make her pay. That'll be $100, please. Write the check right now. Or you can say, I forgive you. That's okay. 
But if you forgive, what happens to that $100? You have to pay it yourself to get a new lamp, or you have to um, give up $100 worth of light and just get you to a darker room, right? Um, Your friend can either pay the cost or you have to absorb it. It works that way with sin, too. And here I'm quoting Keller. He says, when someone robs you of an opportunity, robs you of happiness, of reputation, or takes away something else that you'll never get back, that creates a sense of debt. Justice has been violated. This person owes you. And you can do one of two things. You can try to make the person pay by destroying their opportunities or ruining their reputation. You can hope they suffer or you can see to it that they actually do. But there's a huge problem. Keller writes, as you're making them suffer because of what they did to you, you are becoming like them. You're becoming harder, colder. You're becoming like the perpetrator and evil wins. What else can you do? The alternative is to forgive, but there's nothing easy about real forgiveness. It hurts because you are absorbing the cost yourself. The servant in the parable could not bring himself to absorb the cost of his fellow servant's small debt, even though he had been forgiven a huge amount. When the king heard about it, he was understandably angry and threw that servant into jail to face whatever fate awaited him there. Jesus concluded the parable by saying, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Wow. The father is not pleased when we essentially dismiss or diminish the sacrifice of his son. And that's essentially what we are doing when we refuse to forgive the relatively small offenses of others, even though they feel really big to us. Now, God is not a cosmic torturer, but I believe this parable is making the point that we do suffer inwardly. As Keller suggested, when we don't forgive from the heart, our hearts turn cold and they turn bitter and that creates a whole other set of problems on their own. Forgiveness is our kingdom mandate. Freely you have received, Jesus said, freely give. Yes, we say, but how? How do we forgive from the heart? Well, we need to understand that forgiveness is an action before it's a feeling. Forgiveness is an action before it's a feeling. Since Jesus made forgiveness mandatory for kingdom people, that implies it's a choice we have to make. Just like love is a choice we make. When Jesus taught us to love even our enemies, he didn't make it about feelings. He made it about choices. He said in Luke 6, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, do to others as you would have them do to you. Forgiveness like love is demonstrated in actions of undeserved grace. And you know, Jesus knew the secret of what the science of human psychology would later discover. And that is external actions can create feelings. I've experienced this many, many times over the years. One of those occasions involved an in-law who deeply wounded one of my closest family members, and I was furious, and I felt that that sin was totally unforgivable. But in obedience to Jesus, and even with a hard heart, 
I began to pray for him, whom I considered my enemy at that time. I began to pray that God would bless him. And as I prayed, God pulled back the curtain on that man's life and reminded me of the hurt that had been done to him over years that caused him to hurt others. And I began to weep. God literally broke my heart for what had been broken in him. Now, it didn't excuse what he did, and it didn't make what he did okay in any way, shape, or form, but it reminded me that I, too, am broken, and I, too, cause pain in others sometimes, maybe not in the same way or to the same degree, but we are all, as we like to say, on level ground at the foot of the cross, where Jesus, in some of his last words on the cross, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It didn't happen overnight, but eventually my anger was released. And my love for this person was actually restored. It surprised me. It felt like a miracle. It felt like relief. External actions truly can create feelings over time. My daughter-in-law is a marriage and family therapist. She recently posted this on Instagram. She said, we make forgiveness complicated when we need our feelings to immediately change. It is okay to make the choice to forgive and then give the feelings the attention they need. Feelings don't have to lead the forgiveness process. And I like it that she included the word process. Jesus knows it's hard to forgive. He knows it's costly. And he says, draw near to me. Talk to me about it. Involve me in this process. I love you. I am with you. I am for you. You can do this. Just take the first step. 